Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 75 on the US Fed and inflation targeting. My guest today is Chief Economist and Director of Strategy at Morgan's, a Brisbane-based wealth management firm, one of the leading ones in Australia. It's Michael Knox. Michael, good to have you back on the show. Hello again to you, Gene Tunney. Very good. Yes, it's great to be chatting with you again. Michael, I wanted to speak with you about this latest note you've written, which I think is a very good summary of US monetary policy enacted by the US Federal Reserve and how the Fed is thinking about how it sets its monetary policy. So the title of your note on the 10th of February, which I'll link to in the show notes, the Fed, allowing the economy to run hot. Could you first take us through what's happened with the Federal Reserve? How is it changing its approach to setting the federal funds rate, to setting monetary policy? Could you explain that for us, please? Well, firstly, it's only in recent years that uh, the Federal Reserve has in fact been targeting uh, inflation. Uh, Inflation targeting started decades ago and it was started by the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, which somebody, people forget, you know, uh, which was invented the 2% target for a whole lot of reasons that we could discuss in a separate section. Yes. And Australia followed with a 2 to 3% range. And uh, then the, um, I might have been then the Bank of England and, uh, and then the, uh, the uh, European Central Bank uh, followed after that with inflation targeting. It's only recently in the last few years that the Fed has ado- actually formally adopted uh, inflation targeting and uh, it adopted a target of 2% on the personal consumption deflator. And the personal consumption deflator is an inflation measure that's in the GDP process. And when you actually look at it, uh, and I compare 2% of the PCE deflator, you actually, it actually operates effectively exactly the same as if you had a uh, US, a target on, on, uh, of a US 2.5% CPI growth, okay? So as it turns out, the Australian target is between 2 and 3%, which is to say 2% CPI growth, and the US is start, 2% PCE is effectively the same as a 2.5% CPI growth. So in spite of the fact that it sounds different than the yeah. way we do inflation targeting, it generates exactly the same result. Do we know why it's different? Is it due to the composition of what's in the, the CPI, what items are in the CPI and versus what items are, con- are part of GDP in, in consumption? Well, I think what actually happens is that the um, – the um, PC deflator or the GDP has chain pricing in it. It constantly readjusts itself uh, over time as, as you go through quarter by quarter, whereas the CPI is adjusted every number of years. Uh, and it's that process of adjustment which oh, yes, gives you yeah. a different, you know, that 50 basis points difference in the inflation measure. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I might put some links to that in the show notes because this was an issue in. Uh 
I think this was an issue in the 90s in the US, wasn't it? There was a debate about whether the the CPI was overstating the cost of living. So yeah. Boskin... Interesting, very interestingly, our 2% in inflation range was uh, determined by a researcher in our RBA uh, called Glenn Stevens, long okay. before he was governor. Yeah. Um, I think he might have been... Uh, assistant Governor Economic, something like that. Yeah. And the, how he got to that target was that was effectively what the Federal Reserve had achieved to an, between, two, you know, 2.5% on the CPI is what they'd actually achieved uh, over the previous 10 years. So that's why he adopted that target for Australia. Okay. So with inflation targeting, this was a break from what they did before. So it, I don't know, the, the, it'd be good to get your thoughts on this. Like my – what I understand is that up until, say, the 70s, there was this general idea that the Federal Reserve was there to – you keep the party going until it gets out of hand and then you take the punch bowl away. I think there's a famous Federal yeah. Reserve governor who gave that quote. But there wasn't a lot of science in determining what monetary policy was. Could have been it? Arthur Burns that said that. But Could have been, yeah. It, yes, yes. And, and then Milton Friedman came along and Friedman said that what you've got to do is you've got to target the money supply, the growth of a monetary aggregate like M2 or M3, and you should make sure that grows at a constant rate or aim for a constant rate. But then when monetarism was implemented in practice, it didn't seem to work or it led to very high interest rates and uh, crashed the economy. To, to control inflation, you ended up having to almost crash the economy, and that was uh, – what we saw in the UK and the US arguably in the early 80s. And then there's this view that within... I the, should point out that Milton Friedman in his presidential address, uh, the American Economics Association, also invented the idea of the natural rate of unemployment, yes. which we might talk about later in yes. this discussion. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, I've, very famous uh, speech and... Uh, I've, yeah, I've, I've talked about that. Well, very a, famous to, to economists. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, the, the number of ideas in that and, uh, it, like, it's seminal. You'd, you'd say it's seminal, wouldn't you? It's extraordinary. Uh, and so what economists figured out or what central bankers figured out, you mentioned Reserve Bank of New Zealand and then we followed a few years after, was that if you you need to signal to the market you're credible, that you care about inflation, you want to keep it under control because expectations matter a lot. So if people expect inflation you'll end up with inflation because unions will will bid for it people will build businesses will build it in a contract so you need a central bank that's credible on inflation and the view is that tar having an explicit inflation target makes you credible and lowers inflation expectations is that a fair summary yeah but the reason for that uh was to stabilize the exchange rate that new zealand uh, and australia were both having this problem of uh, in the 80s, when we first got flooding exchange rates, our exchange rates went rent down relative to the US dollar. And that's because uh, we were uh, having running higher rates of inflation than the US was. And so the idea was first in New Zealand that they wanted to stabilise their inflation rate relative to the US so they could actually sell New Zealand government debt in the US wholesale market. That was the reason they did it to begin with. Okay. And that's the reason that Australia followed. And the reason that this inflation targeting kind of spread around the world was uh, what is known as the original sin. 
uh, issue in uh, of of what happened in uh, in the um, Asian financial crisis was countries were borrowing in US dollars, not their own currency, and that was the, the sin of origin, the original sin, where the debt was coming from was US dollars. And so they needed to um, uh, borrow in their own currency. To do that, you've got to have some kind of inflation target, which is similar to the US, so you can float the, the, raise the money in in, U- in the US wholesale market at reasonable rates. Okay, that's a good point. So this is one of the reasons our government is able to now borrow, Australian government can borrow so cheaply, is it? Because once upon a time, you know, borrowing costs, well, for all countries, borrowing costs were much higher. But even in Australia, now, we used to have to borrow in foreign markets. We used to have to borrow in US dollars or in uh, in yen once upon a time as well as in Australia. Now I think we do it exclusively in Australia. But only recently, only okay. recently with the um, uh, term funding facility that the RBA has put in place only in the last year uh, do we pretty much raise all our money for our banks domestically in Australia. Right. Up until even a year ago, all of that money that is used for home lending in Australia by banks was being raised in the US wholesale market. Yes, yes, okay, that's a good point. So, yeah, the term funding facility, that's the... I hope we're not running too fast ahead of our audience, no, Gene, okay. but let's keep going because <laughs> to people like us, this is fun. You're right, yes, yes. Uh, well, we chatted about that last time. I'll put a link in the show notes to a previous conversation where we talked about the term funding facility and uh, in uh, Australia and how that's part of the Aussie QE. Uh, mm, yes. Yeah, yes, you're right. Uh, we better not... Uh, yeah, we, we better not stray from the topic because it's an important uh, important topic. Now, you mentioned that like this is – so this is a change in their monetary policy operations or what how, the, how they're thinking about setting the federal funds rate. What, what will it practically mean, this, this new way of looking at the inflation target? Well, even though the Fed has had a target of uh, 2% on the PCE – deflator, which is what we've been talking about, the personal consumption deflator. They haven't been hitting it. Uh, they've consistently been uh, hitting, you know, 1% one, 1% and change. Uh, and as a result of that, the increase in uh, uh, consumption deflator is not as high over the last five years as you would have expected it to be. And um, so... Uh, what they're attempting to do, and, and now I think it was Ben Bernanke who first uh, approached this idea. It might have been as long as five years ago, but he certainly referred to it this problem of low inflation in um, in his presidential address for the Economic Association uh, a little over a year ago, um, which was delivered in San in San Diego, I think, and um, uh, this problem uh, this problem of underachieving. So what they're now doing is uh, is not just making their their monetary policy decisions. They're not previously they were making their monetary p- policy decisions on where they forecast inflation was going to be. They never ever got to those forecasts, yeah. For, for for whatever reason, and, and again that could be an entire separate discussion as to why not, um, and therefore. The next step was to target actual achievement of the inflation target, and that's what the RBA has now done. 
but but marching on further along for the problem, uh, now they're targeting the average of inflation uh, that they've actually achieved over a previous period, the last couple of years. So only when they actually get to achieving that inflation target of 2% over a couple of years, which means the whole the whole the level of the PCI deflator will be higher than the current than uh, would otherwise be the case. Only then will they stop easing monetary policy. So we've not, so what does that mean? To get the average level of inflation up to the target, they now for the next couple of years have to let inflation run above the target because for the last couple of years, inflation has been below the target. So over a period of, if they run inflation above the 2% PCI deflator, which means like 3% or higher CPI inflation, uh, only in that circumstance will they, will they have actually achieved their target over a number of years. And so what they're going to do uh, over the next few years is then let inflation blow out to you know, 3% or so uh, on the CPI, 2.5% or so on the PCE deflator and run, let it run for a while, what we would have referred to up until now as letting inflation run hot and let the economy run hot in order to get the average level of inflation up to where it would have been <laughs> yes. if they were actually hitting the target correctly in the first place. Okay. Can we go back to this uh, question of why they – haven't hit this target. So the the idea is that the Fed has a dual mandate. Is that right? It it's got it cares about the unemployment rate or the level of employment. It's yeah, it must maximise uh, employment and keep uh, inflation stable. Yeah, right. Okay, and so inflation's been running below that uh, now up until January twenty one. Of course, COVID was a huge. Had a huge impact. Uh, CPI. I think I might have looked at the wrong data point because you're saying it's the PCE. Is that right? Yeah, PCE. Right. Yeah. So I know CPI was running at one point four percent through the year in the US, which means PCE is running about one percent. Right. And so what? What was it that meant that the we haven't seen the level of inflation that? Uh, that might have been expected, or we ha- the economy hasn't got back to that uh, that inflation target. And I mean, is that really a bad thing? If you do have high employment, so the unemployment rate in the US got down to three and a half percent pre-COVID. Yeah. Then what's the problem with having inflation as as low as possible? Uh, that's a really good question, mm-hmm. um, and indeed. Um, if we, uh, we take the long view um, uh, and we look at the, the 19th century, what we find out is that even though there was growth in economies uh, in um, the UK and the US and, and then Australia during the 19th century, prices actually fell right through the 19th century. Uh, so you could have continuing growth with actually a falling price level over a long period of time. Um, so, uh, but um, after World War II, which was before the, um, which of course was before anybody in the current Australian workforce was born, um, 
Uh, after that, we adopted uh, deficit spending and uh, that generated an average rate of inflation. In the early 50s, the Menzies government tried to target inflation around about 4% and they actually wound up with three, three and a bit average from the early 50s to the early 70s. And that seemed to be a pretty good, uh, pretty good average inflation rate. And as a result of that, we had the fastest level of sustained growth rate pretty much everywhere in uh, the Western world uh, that's been experienced in the last 150 years mm. um, with that level of inflation. So that kind of worked pretty well. Um, what was happening then, which was keeping inflation going? Well, I think there was uh, steady growth in international reserves. There was, a, an, there was a small US budget deficit. It was providing enough US dollars to finance international trade. And that was, that was growing and international trade was growing. I think the problem uh, is of, the, of recent years, there's actually been an international monetary problem and that's there's been international, uh, insufficient international foreign reserves to, um, uh, to finance the growth in international trade. Uh, overwhelmingly, the US dollar is uh, what's used to finance international trade uh, it's used to finance more than 85% of all um, international trade uh, transactions. The Bank of International Settlements says there's a higher proportion of international trade now financed in US dollars than in the 1970s uh, when uh, the US was almost 30% of world GDP. It's much smaller now, but the problem is that all of the other alternatives of generating an acceptable international trade medium like the euro for example, which was going to be the big answer to this issue, have failed. And the reason for that it's failed is because the Germans uh, have a uh, trade surplus every year of 8% of GDP. So all of the euros that are out there in the international monetary system are being sucked up by the, uh, by the Germans and they're being s stuffed in their, in their right. mattresses. Okay. So there's none left. You actually have to run deficits uh, to... Uh, be prepared to run deficits like uh, the US dollar does or sterling does in order to your, for your currency to be uh, an international reserve asset. There are more, there's more sterling as an international reserve asset now than at the height of the British Empire, <laughs> but not as a proportion of world trade. Um, and the amount of international trade that's financed in uh, Australian dollars or Canadian dollars is individually equal to the amount of international trade that's uh, financed in Chinese RMB. And this may be because people tra uh, trust the uh, Australian Reserve Bank and the Reserve Bank of Canada more than they trust the People's Bank of China as a reserve bank, you know, to, to store their money in. Okay. Uh, they, those, those are kind of the, uh, the many problems. So I think that that's genuinely the reason, short of international trade, uh, finance is that is actually genuinely the reason why inflation is low, but other people haven't cottoned onto that yet. Okay, how do how do we think about this though? Is the fact that these US dollars are needed for international trade does that mean they're not being used in the domestic economy and that's not feeding into inflation? Is that is that the way to think about no, it? No, no, it's not. It's okay. not a. It's an international monetary thing. Um, um, we might have talked. To, I might have mentioned yes, this before. Yes. This was done. 
the work in this area was done by the IMF back in the 1970s when there yeah. was a big inflation and there's a series of papers published by Robert Heller who was chief for uh, economist at the time and he did them, I think, with a guy called Mason Khan who I remember as a first-class bat for Pakistan but apparently right. it was a different Mason okay. Khan. Okay, um, uh, And... Um, uh, so he, he talked about this growth of international reserves generating worldwide inflation and one of his articles has actually caused that, called that. Uh, but what, what you've had is you've had for the previous five years uh, when there was this low uh, US inflation, you had almost zero growth in international reserves. That, it's that simple. You can look up the measure. Mm. It's uh, uh, available on the, the, uh, the IMF website. And... Uh, and that meant that there was no international reserves going into creating, to expanding the money base of the members of the IMF. And therefore, as the money base growth was slow, uh, therefore, yeah. in money supply growth was slow, therefore, inflation was slow. Uh, That's okay. how that happened. Oh, I see. So Now, paradoxically, what we're facing is we're facing the US biggest US budget deficit since World War II. Last year... Uh, was uh, 14.9% of GDP, and this year looks like being 14.7% of GDP, and that will generate, for the very first time, excess uh, liquidity in international reserves. So we're, what, what we're facing for the next few years is a thumping great international trade boom, uh, which might actually generate a little bit of inflation. Uh, but, uh, uh, well... Let, let's, yeah, okay, let's, yeah. let's talk about no, that as that, it happens over the next yeah, few years oh, absolutely. and say we forecast it. Okay, I understand better what you're talking about now with the International Reserve. So you're talking about reserves held by uh, central banks that… All of the central banks that are members of the International Monetary Fund, yes. Okay, okay, gotcha, okay. I'll link to that article again. I found it in an old IMF monitor or… It's online. International that, that, Monetary Fund staff papers. That might that, be it, yes. That, yeah, that might that be it. long ago article by uh, yes, yes. Uh, Robert Heller and Mason Khan. Okay, I'll have to have a, an episode where I try and unpack that and explain it uh, because it, it sounds, yeah, it's a very interesting hypothesis and, uh, yes. It, well, he actually was one of the first uh, uh, times in which he actually used this uh, detailed econometric analysis to prove what he was saying was true. Okay, okay. We might come back to uh, – so we'll get back to the what's happening, what you think is going to happen over the next few years. You've made some – or you've looked at the Fed projections for GDP and unemployment and you've thought about what – well, what does that mean for what the Federal Reserve will do with monetary policy? What will it do with the federal funds rate? And would you be able to take us through that, Michael, and how that relates to what we talked about before, the natural rate of unemployment, please? We briefly mentioned the natural rate of unemployment, and it might have been far simpler for our audience if we'd kept <laughs> along that line of yes, country. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, before the beginning of this interview, you and I were talking about Stan Fisher, and Stan Fisher, who, by the way, was one of the people who supervised... Um, the um, PhD of uh, Guy DeBell, who's yes. the deputy governor of the RBA. Uh, but uh, about five years ago, Stan Fisher was starting this, uh, examining the concept of the natural rate of unemployment. And the idea was that as unemployment went down, uh, 
uh, you had to get unemployment down to this level or lower before you could generate enough inflation to get to the inflation target. And the natural rate of unemployment seemed to be drifting down uh, over the period. And what we found uh, was um, in the, the every, every quarter, the, um, when the um, Federal Reserve meets to make its decision on monetary policy, well, it meets every six weeks, but every quarter it puts out its summary of economic projections. And the summary of economic projections are put together from the views of all of the economic teams of all of the individual uh, Federal Reserve banks and the whole Federal Reserve banking system. It's called the Summary of Economic Projections. And the last one available was in um, um, December. And they determined that, or they forecast that unemployment in the long term would be stable at 4.1%. Now that is... When saying that, that's their measure of the natural rate of unemployment, it's 4.1%. And therefore what that means is that you have to sustainably get unemployment below that level of 4.1% in the US to generate uh, enough inflation to get up and over the target, okay? So what that really means is if the inflation is, if the Fed is genuinely going to run inflation above the target at 2%, it has to run an unemployment level below 4.1% for an extended period. Now, what's interesting about that is that um, US unemployment is currently 6% and change. And uh, in a presentation that he did, that uh, Jay Powell did, um, gee, last week to the Economic Club of uh, New York, um, he said that actually when you look behind that unemployment number, uh, there's a lot of fall in the participation rate in that 6% unemployment. So the actual inflation rate is higher than that. So you've got to have a lot of employment growth to, gener from, to go from 6% and maybe more than 6% underlying to get unemployment down to below 4.1% and keep it there for an extended period so the Fed can hit this inflation target. What that tells you is it's going to be a damn long time before the Fed starts ever putting up interest rates again. Yes, um, yes. So what in the summary of economic projections uh, uh, they suggested is that they thought the US economy would grow by 4.2% this year in 21. They thought it would grow by 3.2% the year after that in 22. They thought that unemployment would fall to 5% by the end of 21 and by 4.2% by the end of 22, but it would only be in 2023 that you would begin to get unemployment in the US below this 4.1% level. And they thought by the end of 23, US unemployment would fall to 3.7%. So right here, right now, you can, say, you can see that the Federal Reserve is not gonna be, be putting up the Fed funds rate before 2023 and maybe not before 2024 or 2025, you know, because they need to run inflation above the target for an extended period of time. You wouldn't actually expect inflation on those numbers to get to above the 2% target until sometime in about 2024, in fact. Mm. Um, and you wouldn't... Uh, so there's, there's the issue, you know. You've got very low Fed funds rate for a very extended period of time, and... 
even when inflation gets up to above that level in 24, 25, 26, it's going to have to run at that level above the 2% PCI deflator for an extended period of time to get the average rate of inflation up to a level where the Fed wants to put interest rates up again. So you're talking about 25, 26, some period like that, you know, uh, a long way over the horizon before the Fed is putting up interest rates. Now, my problem with that and what I said with the piece is, well, that's really a good thing for the short interest rate, but that's not the way long-term interest rates work. Okay. <laughs> and the Fed doesn't may control short-term interest rates, but it does not control the long-term bond market. It might be buying bonds, but it doesn't control that. And that's determined, the long-term bond market is determined by uh, what's happening with things like um, uh, GDP growth and what's happening, which, which will be positive, uh, and inflation which they are allowing to overshoot. So what I've said is that's, that scenario that, that they've provided is one for a steady and increasing rise in, in long-term bond yields. And, and if you get to the point where inflation is over the target in, is above the target in 24, you know, late 23, 24, 25, and they have said they're not going to do anything about it, you're going to have a bond crash. You're going to have a rapid mm. sell-off in bonds at that time. Yeah. And that's going to do a lot of damage to uh, – has potential to do a lot of damage to the capital market if you, with that kind of scenario out there in 24, 25 and so. And if you actually look at the um, uh, level of the Fed funds rate or the shape of the yield curve, the difference between US 10-year bond yields and short rates, and that's available to anybody who wants to go to Google and put in the words yield curve – capital F-R-E-D, that will take you to the relevant page of the Federal Reserve Economic Database and you will see a chart of long rates already rising relative to short rates yeah. uh, years ahead of this potential problem arising. So bond yields are already rising relative to short rates. So this problem is already beginning, you know, like yeah. we're, we're, we're kicking it off right here, right now. Oh, yeah. So the short rate, so the federal funds rate, which – it's equivalent to our cash rate, isn't it? It's the yes. overnight interest rate. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. And it's practically zero. That- uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's. I, well, yeah, it's. It's got an upside of uh, of uh, twenty five basis points, but it's what's called. The, and you can also find this on the Federal Reserve Economic Database, which you go to by you put in yeah. effective funds rate, capital F R E D, and you can go to this chart, and we'll tell you what it is. And it's been running about 10 basis points. And uh, the RBA uh, cut, out, cut out the effective cash rate. So our one was running at about eight basis points. And that's basically to keep it in line with the effective mm. uh, Fed funds rate. So we weren't running high short-term interest rates in the US. Yeah. So because we didn't want the Australian dollar to rise, well, the RBA wanted to limit the rise of the Australian dollar relative to the US dollar. Yeah, and so with the longer-term yields, you're talking about the yield on, say, a 10-year yes. Treasury bond. Yes. And so that's been increasing. So yes. I'll have to put the numbers. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but I know that got very low during the pandemic. Like, Well, in fact, uh, during the pandemic, uh, Alexander Hamilton, I've stood in the room in Philadelphia where Alexander Hamilton had the uh, – bill passed by one vote in the US Congress for the uh, first issue of the US Treasury bond, July 1789. And the level of bond yields last year was the lowest in all of that time 
since July 1799 uh, that the US Treasury bond has ever traded at in all of that history. Right. Uh, now, yeah. that tells you is the probability is from now on US bond yields will go up rather than down, you know, on an on a, uh, actuarial basis. Okay. Uh, and that's exactly what's happening. Okay, so central banks, are they're much better at controlling the short end of the yield curve, aren't they? So those overnight interest rates or short-term interest rates, it's much harder for them to influence the, the longer-term rates. They can try using quantitative easing. And they are. They are buying bonds and yeah. they are adding them to the, to the, um, um, uh, to the, to the Fed balance sheet. Uh, but uh, the US Treasury bond is the biggest single asset class in the world. And yeah. uh, even the Fed can't buy all those bonds. And so this is what you're talking about, uh, damage to the capital market. Are you talking about pension funds or superannuation funds? They take losses on yeah, those bonds? If they're bonds? invested in those bonds, yes. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't mean they have to be. No, no. Uh, I guess, I mean, there's obviously a lot of investment in, in bonds now, isn't there, with the, the yields yeah. so low? The problem low, is yeah. that uh, in the long-term equities price themselves and based on earnings and bond yield. So if you have a dramatic increase in... Uh, in bond yields, it puts a, a hole in the stock market too. But we're talking about out in 24, 25. It's not next Thursday. Okay, okay. So we'll probably have a few years of low, int- very low interest rates still, but eventually you would expect some type of inflation and then mm. that's going to push up interest rates, so push up mortgage rates and costs of long borrowing term, by businesses. Yeah, okay, money. yeah, definitely. Okay. And, and finally, uh, I, I think we chatted about this last time, but it's just extraordinary seeing those numbers on money supply. Like you, you look at USM2, so the, one of their measures of money, money supply, which takes into account both the currency but also bank deposits, that's grown by over 25% through the year. Sure. And long-term you would expect this to show up in inflation. Now, in that... This might not be in Friedman's presidential address, but it was certainly in his monetary history of the United States. He talks about how the relationship between Friedman money... Friedman Schwartz, yeah. Friedman that's right, Schwartz, yeah. The, the relationship between money and the price level or inflation in the short term, it's it, it, you can't really predict anything based on that, but in the long term, it's very reliable. So you'd have to expect this to, to um, lead to higher inflation eventually. But this will mean that at some time in the future, the central banks are going to have to, particularly if inflation takes off, they will have to try and they will have to increase rates, won't they? That's what, effectively what you're saying. But is there a risk that inflation would get out of control and they really have to raise them much more than they expect and that could cost us in terms of jobs and, and GDP? Well, what, what uh, I think the major, there are two forms of uh, demand for money. One is the precautionary demand for money, uh, like in Germany, where people are sticking money in their, uh, you know, like German, Germany as a country is sticking money in its mattress. Um, uh, but uh, a lot of that increase, but yeah, I mean, people were holding cash because of fear uh, in the US or in Australia. You know, people took their money out of super and they repaid their uh, housing loans with it so they could have extra cash if they needed it. So that's precautionary demand for money. And I think that was the big thing. And I think it still is in the United States, and I think it's still the same thing in Europe. 
Um, but what you find, and you're, you're seeing this in the US and you're seeing this in Australia, certainly, there's an increase in demand for um, spending, investing that money in housing. Um, you know, those sustained lower interest rates uh, and um, that, extra, that extra money supply. Uh, and also, uh, yeah, uh, so people are already investing that money. And you're already seeing house prices starting to improve mm. uh, more slowly in Brisbane than in Sydney and Melbourne, but uh, certainly those things are already happening. They're already happening in the US. And what's interesting is that because of, uh, as what you know has happened in the time of plague since the 17th century, people are seeking to live out of the big cities. Yes. Um, and so in, in Brisbane, for example, if you go out to the Brisbane Valley, there's a significantly increased demand for houses in places like Fernvale or Tagulawa or places like that, um, uh, where people can live outside the t- out town and still sort of commute to Brisbane. Uh, so that's you know, like that's uh, and where you are less likely to to fear being surrounded by people who who uh, who, who may have uh, Wuhan coronavirus yes, or, yes. or whatever else or or you know the next uh, the next a pandemic that comes along. Uh, oh, no, we don't want to think about that. Oh, dear. Um, and those places are in the Brisbane Valley, but they're actually not that far from the CBD when you think about it. Like no, if you compare us with some no. major US uh, urban oh, centres. But you're seeing exactly the yeah. same thing in the US where you okay. see uh, um, small places outside, but also people can now work remotely. Yes, you know, yes. they're not, and they are remotely working as well as, well as working remotely, um, <laughs> and they can get a lot of things done. And they—that's the things we've all all discovered—that uh, we can uh, actually do more, produce more stuff working from home okay. in the last year than uh, many many days we can in the office. That's right, Michael Knox. I think we we got to your the essence of your note eventually. I thought, sorry about my diversions or digressions. Oh, no, that's, that's been fun. <laughs> <laughs> you said a lot of very interesting things. Is there anything we missed? Uh, anything we should uh, talk about before we wrap up? Um, well, the where we where we got to was that the Fed is, uh, as a matter of policy, going to allow uh, inflation to run above the two percent target for an extended period, uh, so that they can get up the average level of inflation, and that means uh, that's a much more open view towards inflation than uh, we've seen by uh, the, Fed, the, the by a major central bank for decades. Uh, and that means we will hopefully get a bit more inflation. If we get a bit more inflation, and, and I think actually there's a good argument that you could have average inflation running at 3% as it did uh, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, 1950s and 60s, you know, when we had a high, very high growth. Uh, and, and what that generates if you have that level of inflation. Um, and Olivier Blanchard, who uh, was long-time uh, chief of the International Monetary Fund in the last, uh, uh, this century, um, uh, he uh, and then became a, a, a president of the American Economics Association after that. He said that he, he found through his research that a 4% inflation target would be the optimal level to maximise growth. And indeed, the uh, 
Reserve Bank of India adopted a 4% inflation target rather than a 2% inflation target. So it may be that if you have actually running higher levels of inflation, that therefore you don't have to use quantitative easing as much because you get negative, you can get negative real interest rates low enough, okay, which is the being, being to generate enough stimulus to reboot the economy when you come into a slump. That's been the real issue that's been, um, you know, has, uh, has uh, beached a lot of central bank action in, uh, in recent, you know, the last, this day, de- the last decade anyway. Yeah, I should mention uh, Olivier Blanchard uh, appears in the the documentary on Netflix about uh, I think it was on Netflix about DSK Dominique Strauss Kahn who we uh, worked with at the IMF, which is a yeah highly recommended show. That was uh, that was extraordinary. Just at anyway, that's that's a bit of a I, I think, digression. I think, we're, I think we've 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 bamboozled our uh, audience and confused our audience <laughs> enough. Okay. I think we'll just stay off that. Okay, we'll we'll stay off that. But that, yeah, that's a fascinating documentary. Okay, Michael Knox, chief economist and director of strategy at Morgan's. Thanks so much. Thank you, uh, thank you, Gene. Thanks for listening to the Economics Explored podcast. If you're enjoying it, please tell your family and friends, and please give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or on whatever platform you're listening on. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or to ask any questions, please email me at gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.